member for Fairfax went on to say, so there's no evidence here that the intervention itself was the thing that got prices down. No evidence that the intervention itself was the thing that got prices down. This creates a considerable mystery. What was it? Was it the coronation, Mr Speaker? <laughs> was it the final episode of succession, perhaps? No spoilers? I have a spoiler for you, Mr Bowen. My retailer told me my electricity prices are going up 25% from the 1st of July. Hello, my name is Ben Beatty, and welcome to the Baseload Podcast. There has been some terrific interviews on podcasts, radio and television, all about our flailing energy systems since last episode. We'll hear Nationals leader David Littleproud interviewed on the, uh, on the Guardian podcast, uh, Nationals MP for Mali and Webster talking to Peter Credlin specifically about the proposed V&I West interconnector. Twiggy Forrest chimes in with uh, a piece on 2GB by Ben Fordham. And we wrap this episode with a chat to Dave Collins, an engineer and business owner from Melbourne, to discuss objectivity in energy policy. Yeah, I really wish uh, that we'd been doing a lot more on energy. My predecessors for the last 10 years, we all know energy policy's been a absolute train wreck for a long time. Fascinating insights there from Bill Shorten. Uh, furious agreement by Chris Kenny on Sky News. Labor can't be blamed for all the climate and energy madness in this country. Coalition governments, state and federal, have gone way too far down this path themselves. There is little doubt that both sides of politics are to blame for the escalating cost of Australian retail gas and electricity. The interests of the consumer have been steamrolled to make way for the interests of big business, much like a productive paddock or native scrub is being flattened and industrialised to shove in more solar panels, wind turbines and transmission lines. Looming not far behind this so-called progress is big mining, seeking to capitalise on the aluminium, copper, steel and mineral payload delivered by government subsidies to the renewable energy sector. Massive renewable energy targets, all completely arbitrary, have been promised, not so much to consumers as to the renewable lobby, energy companies and the green blob that drives political thinking. These targets are so large and the timeframes promised are so short that every single wind and solar project has to be built. There can't be any project rejected from environmental, community or cost reasons. And we see this unfolding in real time with every new announcement and report. South Australia's Electronet is claiming increasing future electricity demand as justification for spending billions on massive new transmission projects, citing local, low-cost, renewable electricity as one reason. This comes within days of Energy Consumers Australia flagging South Australia as having the highest small business electricity costs in the country. In a welcome development, opposition leader Peter Dutton recently put nuclear power on the table. But even if the LNP gets into government in 2025 and manages to legalise nuclear power, this is unlikely to become a short-term solution for Australia, even as many other countries race to add new nuclear power to their grids. Chris Bowen, Federal Energy Minister, can easily seek advice from all sides of the energy sector and his own bureaucracy, even overseas. This easy access to expertise poses a dilemma to me. Uh, and I'll explain it like this. If Chris Bowen is following advice from the heads of AEMO, AER, AEMC, CSIRO and the ESB, whatever it's called now, and he's getting it this wrong, then they all have to go. If Chris Bowen is ignoring their advice and it's going this wrong, then he has to go. The only question is when, but it seems to me his increasingly shrill and defensive manner are a symptom of the pressure he must be under. <laughs> the only person I think would be under more pressure would be his energy advisor. I do not want to be in that guy's shoes. Alex Epstein, a American energy commentator, sums the policy situation up pretty well. You can try to be clever like Texas and California have tried to be, and you play reliability chicken. So reliability chicken means you try to get away with as few reliable power plants as possible and hope that the unreliables work all the time or when you want. So you hope it doesn't get too hot, it doesn't get too cold, the sun shines enough and the wind blows enough, and this obviously isn't going to happen. <laughs> David Littleproud was recently interviewed on The Guardian Australia's weekly politics podcast. It's quite long, and I recommend listening to the entire episode. I don't need to cover the whole interview here, so I hope listeners will forgive me for focusing on what I think is the key section, net zero. There was a view among uh, some Liberals who lost inner city seats that the Nats are dragging their heels and driving a hard bargain on net zero and then complaining about the targets that they'd adopted really harmed the Liberals' vote. Do you want to respond to that and do you think we'll see a similar disconnect on emissions reduction between the Libs and Nats now or are you on the same song sheet with Peter Dutton? Note here that the host has threatened Little Proud with being compared to Peter Dutton. Not much chance of that. Now, I'm not sure how many Nationals voters tune into the Weekly Guardian podcast, but full marks to Little Proud for taking on the challenge and attempting to reach out to non-typical voters. However, I'm not convinced that endorsing net zero is where the Nationals want to be. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the most respectful and mature conversations we've had in our party room was when we signed up to Net Zero. I strongly believe that we had to. We have an international commitment uh, and it's the right thing for generations to come more than anything. Uh, and I'm confident that we can reach Net Zero before 2050. I think capital flows will prove that. And they always do in the world. They go to where problems need to be solved. And this is a problem that needs to be solved. And that's where I've always believed technology will get us there. And I think that's an exciting thing for Australia. In May, I had a piece published in The Spectator Australia titled The Splintered Soul of the LNP, where I compared the LNP's small target strategy, you know, an inch to the right of Labor, to the infamous villain Voldemort from the Harry Potter series. Voldemort split his soul and hid the pieces so they could not be found and destroyed. This small target strategy ultimately failed, and likewise, paying tribute to the Greens is not the path to election victory. It didn't work for Kirkup, Marshall, Perrottet, Guy or Frecklington. Basuto is on his way out. Morrison walked both roads. He won back in coal in 2019, but lost back in net zero in 2022. And the lesson is clear enough. Little Proud should acknowledge this or he will soon be out as well. So the debate for us is really about the impact on the people that we represent, because invariably those costs uh, are at the expense of those industries and those jobs that are in regional Australia. So how do we protect those with technology that gives them a future? Not necessarily just them, but their kids. Because uh, one of the things that drive me to become a national is that I'm just sick of seeing generation after generation young people leaving regional Australia and going to capital cities. It's time to bring our young people home. It's time to keep them at home. And that's the opportunity I see in it. So I'll wrap it up there because there's there's more of the same. But note that Little Proud implies a net zero economy will keep people in the regions. You said it's time to keep our young people home and that's the opportunity I see in it. Well, it seems clear to me that net zero means less farming, less agriculture, less mining. It means less trucks, less planes, less travel and less transport. But only here in Australia, where we're mad for net zero. Nobody knows exactly what net zero means, but people are starting to feel the early effects. We regularly discuss electricity bills, but people in the regions, far from power stations, are now finding net zero means they might have to live beside massive transmission lines. David Littleproud's colleague, Nationals MP Anne Webster, was interviewed by Peter Credlin on Sky News on the 13th of June expressing concerns about massive transmission line projects cutting through Victorian farming regions, Nationals Turf. The concern is that this has been a rushed um, climate change action. As soon as Labor got in, they wanted to uh, ensure that the transmission grid was going to be able to take all the renewables. Um, the evidence would show at this stage that proper consultation has not taken place and uh, even the ISPs that AEMO have been using to justify these projects are uh, really held in question. And there are independent professors who uh, can definitely talk you through the facts. And it's deeply concerning to mm. many, many shires across my electorate that this is being pushed through with ministerial orders, no questions being asked, and uh, people just need to suck it up and uh, accept it. Well, we say that's not good enough. Former chief scientist Alan Finkel gives us some idea of what a net zero might look like for the people in the regions in a piece uh, published in The Guardian Australia on Saturday the 17th of June 2023. And I quote... Think forests of wind farms carpeting hills and cliffs from sea to sky. Think endless arrays of solar panels disappearing like a mirage into the desert. What we have now has to be scaled up by a factor of 20. It will take mining on a massive scale to extract the minerals needed for batteries and solar panels. It will take giant factories to build the parts for towering wind turbines. It will take untold miles of high-voltage transmission lines to carry the electricity to power the mines and factories and the 24-hour buzz of civilization. It will take engagement with and support for affected communities, financing at unprecedented scale, strategic government policies that convert targets into actions. There's plenty more where that came from, but oh, you get the picture now. Local farmer Glendon Watts was also on the Credlin Show. I think that um, there's a lot of unknown, which is probably one of the hardest things. A lot of bulldozing, a lot of railroading. We, we don't know. AMO continue to neglect to come to the community meetings, to the forums, to give us information. Um, you know, they're very quick to change their roots. And with that comes fear, comes the unknown. Um, you know, people don't know what to expect. They don't know what they can and can't do around these transmission lines. We don't know the effects it's going to have on our, 
uh, our business, our land prices. Listeners may recall my last episode of the Baseload podcast featured Katrina Thulin from this exact same Victoria region expressing similar concerns. I've doubted for a long time whether all this transmission can ever be built. I think net zero is a pipe dream. Matthew Warren on Neil Mitchell's radio show. The plan for renewables talks about 10,000 kilometres of new transmission lines, and we build at a rate of five or 600 kilometres a year. So you can do the maths. It's going to be a while before we've got enough capacity to bring that, that new generation online. So we need, what did you say, 10,000 kilometres, and we're building at 500 to 600 a year? Yep. Slight change of tack now. Everybody's favourite iron ore miner turned subsidy farmer Twiggy Forrest is, uh, was interviewed by Ben Fordham on 2GB last week. Now, labelling Twiggy a subsidy farmer is uh, a bit rich, I know, a bit mean, but uh, he is interested in developing hydrogen and there are a lot of subsidies on offer for hydrogen from state level and federal governments. And what are the chances of hydrogen becoming a major part of any country's economy? Uh, slim to zero, except unless the governments decide to push it. And of course, that means taxpayer money. Let's talk power and renewable energy. The federal government wants Australia to have 82% renewable energy by 2030. Your company, Squadron, will be responsible for 30% of that. So uh, there are a lot of experts saying we're a mile off the pace here. Are they right? Uh, we've got to get cracking. But, I mean, if you just look at the plans for our company, they are massive. They're rolling out. We're going to be turning earth soon on another major wind farm, 100-odd towers. Uh, look, we opened one last month, as you know, 50-odd towers. I mean, we are pushing ahead as hard as we can. The goat's back, and the goat's just decided that Twiggy Forest sounds a lot like a used car salesman. Carry on, Twiggy. But are you keeping up with the pace? Because when we read the warnings from the Clean Energy Council, they say that we're moving at half the pace needed. Yeah, so you know, we have to crank it up. I can't speak for the rest of the industry. I can speak for our company. Our company is working as hard as Fortescue ever did in the early days, and, mate, that was flat out. Twiggy's not above making bold claims that don't bear scrutiny. In March 2022, uh, FMG, Fortescue Metals Group, issued a statement clarifying comments made by Andrew Forrest about a deal to supply green energy to Europe by 2030, when Twiggy Forrest said it was a $50 billion expenditure. FMG clarified that there was no commitment to this expenditure and that all investment decisions would be at the discretion of the Fortescue board. How many wind and solar farms do you personally have to build over the next seven years for Australia to reach its targets? We need to build about 40 wind towers a month. 40 wind towers a month doesn't seem very feasible to me. And without transmission, who's going to build them? You know, we've done our share in the last couple of months, but we need others to lock in as well. What are you moving at at the moment? If you need 40 a month, how are you looking at the moment? Here comes the sales pitch. Yeah, mate, I'd, I'd, we're accelerating. If you look at a Hawaiian wave, right? So we're at the, we're at the early stages of the wave just cranking right up. So, so, <laughs> is, uh, that, is that so a positive way that. of spinning the fact that you're not meeting the target no, at the moment? No, hell no, hell no, mate. Um, if you watch Fortescue, we didn't just wake up in the morning with 200 million tonnes of iron ore, mate. We, we started at 15, then went to 20, 25, 30, and then there, we suddenly jumped to 90, 150, 180. So... Watch this happen, Ben. We're going to be working so hard, mate. If it doesn't happen, there will not be a more committed group of Aussies pushing it than us. It seems to be that we're heavily relying on you. If you've got to build 30% of this stuff, that's a, a big weight for you to carry. It is a weight. It is a weight. But, mate, I'm kind of bred for this. I've been through it with Fortescue Metals Group. You know, we spent $50 billion out there in the scrub. Okay, I get it. Twiggy with Fortescue has built an iron ore empire. Well done. Congratulations. He's an entrepreneur. He's employing lots of people, making lots of money. Fantastic. Uh, I fully support his endeavors there. What bothers me is uh, the claims that he's going to build this hydrogen industry on the back of nothing, uh, requiring all this infrastructure in people's backyards. This is not the Pilbara, where, where all this infrastructure he's talking about is going to go. Uh, we employ 20,000 people. Hundreds of thousands of people have gone through our organizations. This is like that, Ben. It's only bigger... <coughs> 20,000 people are going to be employed on wind and solar farms. I want to say to all the coal workers out there in, across Australia, your future is really needed. We need you to cross over into the renewable energy industry even more than you need us. 
I'd suggest that unless Twiggy's offering to employ coal miners in his iron ore mines in the Pilbara, that uh, there aren't that many high-paying jobs in the renewables industry. Coal supplied 78% of New South Wales power in the last 24 hours. Why are we turning it off? Oh, mate, because if we don't, we're toast. No, Twiggy, we will not be toast even if we doubled our emissions. Australian emissions are next to nothing on the world stage. And secondly, we're going to have high energy prices. I mean, the reason why we've got high energy prices, unreliable energy, is because we're relying on coal. If Twiggy's talking about wholesale electricity prices, you know, not just energy, then coal sets the wholesale price at a much lower value than gas and hydro do. From AMO's first quarter 2023 quarterly energy dynamics report, over the evening peak, the price-setting role of hydro generation has increased significantly to make it the most frequent price-setter by fuel type. And if we see the chart that shows the price-setting of coal versus gas versus hydro, we see that in Q1 2022, black coal set the price at $92, while gas set it at $179, and hydro at 94 In Q4 2022, Black coal set the price at $113, while gas set it at $173 and hydro at $141. And in Q1 2023, black coal was down to $88, while gas was down to $138 and hydro was holding high at $121. Now I'd point out that the, the black coal is averaged between Queensland and New South Wales, so individual sites will vary even greater. What we can say without a doubt is that gas and hydro set the price at a higher level than coal does and therefore has a greater effect on average wholesale prices. You know, the cheapest form of energy on the planet by a mile, Ben, is renewable energy. So we've just got to get into it. Twiggy sounding a lot like Energy Minister Chris Bowen. Renewable energy is actually now the cheapest form of energy. Actually, coal is an expensive form of energy compared to renewables. But nobody ever quantifies this in any way. They just keep saying the words while our electricity bills keep going up. So that 78% that we're currently getting, I know you're saying we need to transition, but people are worried that when we don't invest in coal or when we allow those industries to dwindle, that the lights are going to go out, that the prices are going to climb in the short and medium term. Yeah, look... I don't think everything will be perfect, right? But I can say this. If we rely on coal, it's going to come savagely imperfect. Surely the the rules of supply and demand would dictate that if the world transitioned away from thermal coal, that thermal coal would then be in oversupply and would become very cheap. And therefore, our local coal-fired power stations burning local coal without even any transport costs would be even cheaper to run than they are now. Crossing over, being done at speed by responsible people who are who are deep and heavy industrialists have done this before. Done this before? What, like uh, South Australia, Germany, California? Who want to employ tens of thousands of people is the responsible attitude to deliver the cheapest, most reliable cost of energy the world has ever had been. And we've got to get this through our heads. We have been relying on coal because there was nothing better. Just because we've found something better does not mean we stick to something worse. We move to something better. That's renewable. Technology is a glittering lure. But uh, there's the rare occasion when the public can be engaged on a level beyond flash. My first job... I was in-house at a fur company with this old pro copywriter, Greek, named Teddy. And Teddy told me the most important idea in advertising is new. Creates an itch. You simply put your product in there as a kind of calamine lotion. Don Draper with some advertising lessons for us all. Uh, Paul Broad uh, was the highest paid public servant in the country, the long-time boss of Snowy 2.0 and the former boss of Infrastructure New South Wales, he says the idea of us reaching 82% renewables by 2030 is complete and utter BS. He's not the only one. Plenty of people say this. Okay, well, I don't know how many things he's ever been paid for, which he's built from scratch, mate. I'd say not much. I mean, if 
anyone can go and run a big corporation. You try pulling on, building something out of nothing. I don't know if that's your skill base, but it is mine. It is the people I employ. It is the team I have. Building things out of scratch is what we do, and we've done it super successfully. No doubt that Twiggy and his company have been successful building mines, rails, and ports over in the Pilbara and selling their iron ore to China. Uh, This is different. Matthew Warren again on the Neil Mitchell Show. The people that governments have made uh, are difficult, if not impossible, to deliver. And we're, we're, we're realising that, and that's, been, that's probably been the case for a number of years. So the, the problem is that we are not replacing like-for-like capacity with the coal generators that are exiting. And as they keep closing, the, the margins we're working with get tighter and tighter. So how many of your wind and solar projects will have Aussie-made products? Because China sells about 85% of the world's solar panels, most of the wind farms. Does net zero involve holding out a blank cheque and giving it to China? No. Now, that's a, that's a cracking question. We can't transition overnight, but I can tell you we're transitioning flat out. I've been up to China, up to, across North America, into Europe. Of course, Australia say, I want us projects in Australia, we want to do manufacturing in Australia. This is our one shot on the barrel to not have all our coal-fired power systems all made overseas. They are now all our gas-fired power systems made overseas. They are now. I want for renewable energy made in Australia. Now, look, we can have foreign investors in there, cool and groovy, but I want to use this change now to bring jobs back to Australia. All throughout the fossil fuel sector, there's no freaking jobs in manufacturing. Let me tell you, Ben. So let's put manufacturing now in Australia. For, for renewable energy. Let's not follow the fossil fuel path of just outsourcing it. Uh, that would be a no. No local manufacturing. We mentioned China and the solar panels and the wind turbines coming from there, but they're also building new coal plants at a rapid rate. So why are they still investing in coal while we're not? Why indeed? Okay, so they have they've built more renewable energy last year than the rest of the world combined. Now, if you don't think I don't give them stick for building coal-fired power stations, be assured, Ben, I do, right? Australian businessman Andrew Forrest has rejected suggestions he blindsided the health minister by bringing a Chinese diplomat to their joint press conference yesterday. The Chinese consul general in Melbourne appeared alongside Mr Forrest and Mr Greg Hunt, announcing the purchase of millions of testing kits from China. (laughs) What a scream. I'm the most Australian person I know, man. Okay, a low blow there, but... uh... I think it's fair enough to mention that Twiggy's business interests are dependent on China. So why are they building lots of coal-fired power stations again? When they say it's this population of kids who will never be educated unless we put some energy there, it's going to be temporary, Andrew. Let us just put something there and watch us, encourage us to be the biggest renewable energy creator, supplier, maker in the world. And I've said, yeah, okay, cop that. Your track record is that. But I have challenged them, Ben. It's it's right, really public to put in their next five-year plan that they bring their renewable energy targets from 2060 to the 2030s for massive economic benefit for them, the world. And- okay, I think I get it. China is building a lot of temporary coal-fired power stations to help them become more renewable, which will then help the world. And a side note is that Twiggy is there influencing China's five-year energy plan. They're not listening to the rest of the world. Why would they listen to you? Mate, they listened. They really listened. Okay, they're new, but their they're focus new... in, is lifting people out of poverty. That's their number one focus, and coal is part of that equation. Let's just be really clear. They want to lift people out, out of poverty the cheapest way possible. They want to get electricity. They want to get power into these new industries, into these populations who were impoverished as quickly, as cheaply as possible. How do you do that, Ben? You do it with renewable energy. When you can't do it with renewable energy, fall back on coal. But wherever they can, mate, they're doing it with renewable energy. One example, 120 gigawatts of new renewable energy built last year. That is three times what Australia has right now. Three times, Ben, in one year. And they're accelerating from here. I'll just point out that the output from 120 gigawatts of renewables is nowhere near the output of 50 gigawatts of coal. Why don't you support nuclear energy? 
Mate, it's a, it's a great crossover fuel. It's not a solution for Australia. If you reckon it's hard yards building a freaking coal mine, mate. I mean, you want to try something really hard, like a nuclear power plant. It takes 10 years, even to get it before Parliament, to be considered before you can even start building it. If you watch Fortescue, we didn't just wake up in the morning with 200 million tonnes of iron ore, mate. We, we started at 15, then went to 20, 25, 30, and then there, we suddenly jumped to 90, 150, 180. So watch this happen, Ben. We're going to be working so hard, mate. If it doesn't happen, there will not be a more committed group of Aussies pushing it than us. It seems to be that we're heavily relying on you. If you've got to build 30% of this stuff, that's a, a big weight for you to carry. It is a weight. It is a weight. But, mate, I'm kind of bred for this. I've been through it with Fortescue Metals Group. You know, we spent $50 billion out there in the scrub. Renewable but if, but energy if you adopted so that quick. philosophy when you were starting out, you wouldn't have built the business you've built. No, that's untrue, mate. That's well, if, if you say untrue. it's too hard, it'll take too long. No, 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 no. It's not too hard. If you've got 20 years, it's fine, right? But when I built iron ore projects, build them in three years, right? When I'm building renewable energy projects, you can kick them off in three months. That's why it's such a quick, energetic, inexpensive solution. Now, nuclear power plants, if they already exist, cross over as quickly as possible. Do firming power, do that do that kind of cyclical power, but don't do baseload power. Let the punters out there enjoy lower power costs through renewable energy for all their baseload. And we don't do nuclear because it's too hard, it's not too hard, it's too slow, there's plenty of other things to do it. You can turn a mine around in three years, you can turn a renewables project around in three months. Yeah. Now, we want to have a look at some of your projects that are going on at the moment. So Squadron uh, will be responsible for 30% of that push towards 82% renewable energy by 2030. Uh, Take us through some of the other projects. I know that you'll be here all day if you tell us all about them, but you've got investments at the moment all over the place. So which are the ones that we should be taking a close look at? Oh, look, Clark Creek will be the biggest in Australia when it's built. Um, and we we bought that project. We have... We What's have, Clark Creek? Uh, Clark Creek's a massive project up in Queensland. You've got a big project about to kick off out in the central wheat belt of New South Wales. Oh, that sounds easy and, and good for the environment. Um, you know, we've got very large projects which just got going in Victoria. So... <laughs> Oh, that's a that's a sick gate. Uh, these projects in Victoria with the transmission troubles. Hmm. We're we're really concentrating up and down the east coast, wanting to put this low cost energy into the grid. Ben, low cost for whom, Twiggy? My bills keep going up. Wholesale electricity is not retail electricity. There's a whole lot of equipment in between that needs to be paid for, like your transmission lines. And when it comes to green hydrogen, that's a big issue for you but we hear about snowy 2.0 and it was supposed to be done by 2021 now they're saying 2029 does this work where does it work overseas green hydrogen i'd probably speak to the same bloke who was whinging about you know green energy not being here quick enough i mean if you follow snow rivers track record under him not so great mate i think there is definitely some criticism of the snowy hydro board and the ceo to uh to have come clean on the on the problems with snowy two well before now but um yeah twiggy's avoiding the question there we will be building out the green electricity systems real quick because you can get approvals and people love it and farmers like me say bring it in mate it'll be the best wheat crop i'll ever have but we hear day in day out that this is not the case people are pushing back against these projects against the transmission lines against the development but green hydrogen is harder, tougher. We're using Fortescue Metals Group, massive industrial company, great at this, some of the best engineers in our country, easily designing it, building it. That's what we, that, that we have to cross over. Because in the end, Ben, we need fuel you can cart around, not on wire, but in tanks. And for chemistry, for building products, that will be renewable hydrogen. The most important idea in advertising is new. When will power bills come down? Uh, over this decade. Over this. Over decade. this decade. Yeah. The more the more the renewable energy sector cuts in. I mean, you can't bitch and whinge about high power costs when you've got seventy eight percent coming from coal, mate. So again, Mr. Forrest, coal does not set the high prices in the market. And further to that, renewables are clearly unable to lower electricity costs. 
You can't whip me for not having 30% of, <laughs> of, of the being built overnight, right? Don't I'm, hold I, your I'm, breath, I'm, ladies I'm and gentlemen. Out, the mate. power prices will come down over this decade. Uh, welcome to the Baseline Podcast. Tonight we have Dave Collins from Melbourne. Now, Dave and, uh, is an engineer and a business owner from Melbourne, and we cross paths in an Engineers Australia meeting discussing a new era, area of practice for clean energy. Um, I describe myself as a, a skeptic in the whole area, and uh, Dave and I sort of cross paths there. So, Dave, just before we were we started the interview, we were talking about the um, the era of, of skeptics and uh, what to do about it. I said it drives me a bit insane, but you said uh, maybe there's another option. Yeah, so I, I say it as an opportunity. Firstly, all humans are flawed, you and me included. And, uh, and one of the joyful things in life is to learn every day. And when we do that, then we've had a good day. Well, that and also waking up. That's the first good thing that happens every day, of course. <laughs> um, so what does that mean in terms of, of uh, learning every day? And I think one of the things that, that I observe is I observe the way that people uh, look at the world is from, from very much a personal perspective. And I think all of us are guilty of that from time to time. And at the moment, uh, what I notice is there's a lot of uh, discussion around what's called disinformation, whether it's in the media or it's in someone's, uh, the way someone speaks or the way that uh, someone behaves, you know, in a ways of a dis, you know, in an unauthentic way, for instance. And so for instance, if you, if you behave in a certain way and speak in a certain way, you're good. And the other way is bad. And, and these, to my mind, are, are very much personal perspectives. You know, you know, the like Einstein. You know, it's relative, right? It, it, and, and it has to be right because good and bad is a perspective. It doesn't. Nothing. Nothing is perfectly good. Nothing is perfectly bad. Um, you know, unless you get into some uh, the crevices of the human psyche, I guess, with some of those people who maybe don't belong on this earth any longer. But in, when you're talking about energy systems, you know, there's there's good and bad everywhere. It's all over the place. Yeah, and I, I was amused by a book that I saw today, a book title. It was something like Truth and Other Lies was the title <laughs> of the book. And uh, and in a way, I, I do like that. Having said that, my uh, my bullshit meter immediately turns on and I think about what is this person's perspective on that issue? So one of the things I would love to talk about today is how do we sort of fix that problem? How do we start to fix this problem and, and help people become more, let's call it centered instead of, you know, left or right or up or down on their views so that they remove as much as possible of the bias. And I, I'm not sure what the answer is there other than by being aware of it. Obviously, that's a good starting point. I think I think awareness, of course, and um, talking about it uh, and maybe talking about these things from the perspective of are you objective or are you biased? Do you do you understand your your biases. Now, I'm, I'm not afraid to say my own biases. I'm I'm deeply in favor of the lowest cost, most reliable energy system. Um, and I've, I've probably fairly criticized for being extra critical of wind and solar and now batteries and hydrogen and all the other net zero stuff. But I think objectively, my criticism is fairly accurate. It's not terribly good for the environment. It's not terribly good at lowering costs. It's not terribly good at, at uh, supplying electricity or, or energy. Objectivity has got to be key. Well, just to your point, if you, excuse me one moment, I'm just going to grab a document here. So I, I am speaking to you for not, I don't know the Aboriginal uh, read district that, I, that we're speaking from, but we are speaking also from the Positive Energy Places, which is a, a building that uh, we've created here in Melbourne. It is Melbourne's first positive energy building. We generate twice as much energy as we consume through uh, a bucket load of solar cells on the roof. Here's a picture of the roof. Mm -hmm. I'll try and get that up close and personal. What sort of kilowatts? And what sort of kilowatts are you talking about there? Not huge. It's only a 26 uh, kilowatt. Uh, sorry, 23.6 uh, kilowatt solar panel array, okay. but we've also sort of designed the building so that we don't use much energy inside. So that's how we achieve it. We, we achieve it through one, by putting energy on the roof, yep. and two is by um, minimizing energy consumption inside. But one very important third thing, and I think it alludes to what you were talking about bef 
before about the deficiencies of solar and their intermittency. What we try and do is we align if this is the diurnal pattern, the daily pattern, mm. so this is one day, this is the next day, and these are sequential days of, say, sunlight. The sun comes up in the morning, you know, you increase your uh, your solar uh, generation, and in the evening, of course, it drops off when the sun goes down. If you can align these two, so this is being your consumption pattern and this being your generation pattern, then you can see how they overlap with each other very nicely. You don't need batteries. You can you can uh, use your energy and providing you don't have too much. If you have too much, then potentially you squirt it out into the grid and you create some problems for other people and for the managers at the grid. But if you if you use it yourself, then I, I think uh, solar energy is an excellent idea. It's you know, it's been cheap for us. It's been easy to manage. Having said that, we've only had it since 2008, our system, and we've already had uh, a couple of failures in 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 panels and and we've had uh, we've got one of four um, inverters that's out of action at the mm -hmm. moment, and so it's 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 definitely um, let's call it great if you don't have to worry about it. Like the moment, I don't have to worry about it because even if all of the solar panels failed right now today, I'm connected to the grid. That How was that? and that was what I was going to ask as well because obviously with a business to run and. Um, you need some continuity of supply. You need to be able to expect and anticipate when that supply is going to be there. Um, You've got I, it. I'm, I'm fully on board with, particularly with off-grid sites, and say so some of these um, small islands which depend on diesel, if they can get some wind turbines and some solar panels in to reduce their overall cost, I think that's uh, absolutely what they should do. Um, what you're saying about though, lining up the usage with the supply... So that's a really interesting question, and that's a, that's a big challenge for um, the majority of businesses and people and uh, you know economies in general. So I don't think in the in the large scale changing the usage pattern to match the technology is the end goal. I don't think that's a, that's a great objective result at all. I think we need a a system that gives us energy on demand because. Uh, I like to point out to people, I think our society in general has evolved with the evolution of electricity supply. We we depend on it way more than we think. Um, from Imagine if the pumps went out and we had no more water, clean water coming through in the cities. It'd be a catastrophe. Well, it's funny you say that. And I, I think that the counter argument to that that I've heard very often is that Oh, that's okay because modern society isn't something we really should be proud of, and that it's <laughs> yeah. no, no kidding. So the argument yeah. goes like this: Is that there's, the Malthusian, the Marxism, all, all those? Yeah, and and it's very much uh, they 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 put us in the basket of capitalists. Mm. You and I are capitalists, and that's why we need this. And neocons, well, neoliberals, all all that fun stuff. But uh, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. the the, uh, the the question there is: Well, do you mean capitalism as a system? Uh, because I think we can all uh, take aim at the corruption and the crony capitalism that goes on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, look, I think you've, you've nailed it on the head. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yep. And, and that's that's what we're doing right now. I think there's so much of the, let's call it the, you know, the progressive voice is around, oh, let's change the way we're doing because it's so terrible. We're destroying the planet. Mm. And it's, and 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 they they have some very good arguments. I mean, look at biodiversity loss, across the planet, when you look at obviously climate change, when you look at pollution, I mean, even something as, you know, uh, simple as a plastic bag is now being held up as being, you know, a, a terrible thing, which, which, by the way, I don't necessarily agree with. I think plastic bags are the most extraordinary. Thing, I, I think I think you just have to manage them better. I, I definitely think those, um, no one wants pollution, no one wants um, environmental degradation on the scale that we're talking about and biodiversity. But I think, um, Back to the objectivity, I don't think the arguments put forwards by the likes of Greenpeace and um, and maybe even the Greens political party pass any sense of objective test. Uh, so I'm very skeptical. As soon as I say it, I'm skeptical, which is I'm, I'm almost I almost need to train myself out of that um, that snap reaction. <laughs> <laughs> oh Ben, look, you and I are so similar, and that's exactly I guess where I've been today. Is that, so I'm involved with a bunch of folks who think similar to us. And, and in fact, I'll tell you more about it offline. 
Um, but one of the things that, uh, that we try and do is we try and sort of look at these things truly objectively. And we always struggle because there, there is, if you like, and it's not a false, if you like, view. It's just that we, we learn to have, we develop habits. And these habits are based upon facts that we've experienced. And uh, is it true that our habits are always appropriate? Uh, no, there are, there are exceptions. And so th this is the distinction I think we need to try and sort of generate is, 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 is make it clear that we support because part of this is people take the high moral ground on this and they believe that they're right, we're wrong, therefore we should go away and just, you know, uh, die in hell or whatever we're supposed to do, yeah. burn in hell, that's it. But, but the truth is that everyone has a, a piece of this problem. And, and as you suggested, I think the, the more progressive views on these, they tend to sort of take the view that they're right because all of these things are bad. I mean, we all hate biodiversity loss. We all hate climate change, you know, uh, damage, destruction, and Well, they, they place themselves in a, in a morally superior position, uh, say, yeah, yeah. because the environment is above all else. It's the it's the god. It's the faith. It's um, I don't know. It's the idol that must be that must be protected at all costs. Now, I agree mostly with that, except at the at all costs part. I think there's a there's an argument there where you need to go. Well, hang on a second. If I need to dig a hole, you know, that's going to come at a cost to the environment. If I need to chop down a tree to stay alive, that's going to come at a cost to the environment. So therefore, we need to look at the options that. Um, and when we come down to energy, it's got to be the density. Uh, and I think this is, as we get more and more forests knocked down and farmland cleared for um, solar panels and wind farms and transmission lines, and then there's more and more holes pop up all over the world to mine the battery materials, it's going to become more and more apparent that the that side of the economy, which is driving the sort of the green revolution, is actually pretty bad for the environment in its own right. Yeah, it's funny you should say that because it's exactly the discussion I had today with some some colleagues, and it was along these lines. Is and that is that. Well, hang on. Um, how ironic is that if we have to destroy the planet in order to save the planet? You know, it's it's this sort of the strange hypocrisy I think on the case of individuals. Mm. But putting aside that sort of let's call it that ad hominem, you know, I, I you know, it's, we, you know, we're all guilty of attacking people rather than the ball sometimes. But if we focus on the ball here, what is what does the ball look like? And the answer is, I think that the ball, we have to decide what the ball is. Yeah. And at the moment, there's a lot and, of and, and the game. What is the game that the ball's being played in? Right. So yeah, I agree yeah. with not attacking the person. Uh, I agree with looking at the uh, the objective facts and logic, and. Uh, I mean, all roads lead to nuclear power, which we're gonna we're gonna talk a bit more in detail a bit later on. I have a list of questions <laughs> that I'll okay. um, that far, we'll get let's, to. Let's but... far away because yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, okay, let's well, let, let's started. do that. So we've done a, we've done a lot of the um, the fluffy stuff up front. I think we uh, we we know where we stand. The um, you had a piece in an online magazine, Rationale magazine, and you shared your thoughts on yeah. nuclear. And, uh, and you looked at the cost time waste questions in, in a fair bit of detail. So um, let's, can you give us an overview on that and um, give us some objective on those, those, those ideas? Okay, let me, let me make a, a start. Firstly, um, one of the difficulties we have is that, I th and I think your point earlier about the game, so there's the ball and the game. So the ball in this case is uh, environmental uh, impacts. You know, that's the, that's the yep. question, at, I think, at hand. What are the differences in the environmental impacts between the different technologies that are available? Firstly, we need to differentiate between, I think, blue sky technologies and commercial technologies. Mm. Hydrogen, blue sky. Hypeless. You know, forget it, fellas. Yep. This what? is going to happen in... I mean, how long did it take to develop the damn steam engine, for God's sake? Well, know? hydrogen's been around for nearly as long as the bloody steam engine. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead right. And we know a lot of problems with hydrogen. Look, in, in, in our business, uh, we worked on one, we work on all kinds of projects. We worked on one hydrogen prob pro problem and it turned out it was a total scam. It was a non-problem. The guy was only doing it because he got a grant of $5 million from the Northern Territory government. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence of that, uh, not only did he waste his money, he didn't even pay us until literally yesterday, after 18 months, oh, we gosh. finally got paid for doing this project. It was just, so So it's not only blue sky and technology, it's also blue sky in terms of financials, i.e. you just 
you know, they don't, the money's not there really. Yeah. And it's, and the ideas are, are a, 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 you know, a, are not existent or, or, a, or a, at very least, you know, a possibility rather than a, a proven, you know, Some, sometimes the, uh, the odd off the cuff tongue in cheek, uh, five word slogan tells the truth better than something. So I'm my, my one, one of the ones that comes to me with hydrogen, it's a product without a market. I mean, <laughs> we don't, no one, no one wants to buy uh, a gigajoule of hydrogen at $30 when they can buy a gigajoule of gas at 10 or $5 yeah. in America. You know, it's just, it's just not going to happen. The only way it'll well, happen is if that, that difference is taken out by taxpayer subsidies, which to, frightens me to my core because there's so much of it's needed well it's it's not just subsidies but it's also by uh structure so at the moment because of the current uh in australia the current objectives where they're trying to basically force um this uh wind and solar solution and and i'm, I'm gonna just reframe the wind and solar because everyone loves the idea of free energy i love free anything i mean come on doesn't everyone but let's be frank, wind and solar is not free. Um, you not only have not to free. put it. Yep. Yeah, there's two two big differences there that have to be considered. Firstly, it doesn't last very long, 20, 25 years. You got to replace it all. Um, it's not free because your impact, we're talking about the environment. You cover about a thousand times more surface area per unit of energy output. This is kilowatt hours yep. than you do uh, with, say, a, a nuclear technology. Um, or coal, for that matter, they're they're similar because they both fit on a, a small footprint. Mm -hmm. um, the the other huge benefit, of course, is that with um, or, or challenge with with wind solar is it's not just wind and solar. You've got wind, you've got solar, you've got transmission lines because you need lots and lots of transmission lines yep. to be able to uh, to access different climatic zones yep. to avoid the intermittency. To get it to a and so we're area. talking. Yeah, in Australia, we're talking east, west, north, south, across the country, diagonally, you name it. And then, of course, a really big one is is energy storage. Mm. I mean, no no one's got that um, on a commercial basis. No one's got that sorted on a climb, on a country scale. Yep. Sure, we do have the odd dam, and and if you go to countries like um, Norway, Finland, Brazil, yeah, Brazil, yeah, yeah, they have shitloads of huge you know, dams and huge rivers and, mm -hmm. and huge, you know, mountains and the ability to, uh, to generate uh, most of their energy in some countries' cases. Or you go to Iceland, of course, where they have, you know, geothermal and, and, and yep. how lucky are they? So we don't have that. Yep. Most countries don't. Yep. And so that's, we're forced to basically say, we've got to sort of find a way of doing this to create, you know, and, and, and intermittent is one sort of extreme. The other one is, um, you know, let's call it continuous supply. How do you get continuous supply energy on demand when you need it? And and as you say, that's what our society's grown up on. You can't run a smelter, obviously, on mm. um, on an aluminium smelter on renewables because, frankly, uh, if you have more than a few hours of of loss of power, you're out of action. You well, know, and, and you shut. I'm I'm just uh, yeah I'm worried that we won't be able to work. That's not going to be a cause for concern within a decade because the uh, Aluminium smelters won't be able to afford the uh, the energy costs, the labor costs, and the and the green tape, right? So they'll be gone anyway. It's yeah. devastating. Well, it's it's in fact we're seeing it happen already. So Point Henry smelter in Geelong is already closed down. Yep. Um, Curry Curry smelter up in uh, New South Wales is closed down, um, and those are based upon price. So we we haven't been able to give them security of and and at a, at a price that that is. And I'm not talking about anything special. I'm just talking about the sort of prices that other countries are able to supply their aluminium smelters. Did you see the um, recent interview? We can't do that anymore. Did you see the recent interview? I think it was on it was on MSNBC. I think in America, the the, the CEO of Dow Chemical outright stating that they're going to build 80 megawatt modular SMRs to run their factories, because the benefit of that is they get processed steam out of it too. So they're not yeah, what a, they're not interested in a in a you know, wind and solar solution because obviously that's not good for their um, industry to make the uh, the stuff as cheap as they can. They're probably twenty four seven, you know, no doubt. Well, well, and I think one of the disconnects that that is really going to come home to roost is the fact that 
the only way that we can afford to run these big cities we have is by making bucket loads of money from our industries. And without the uh, electrical energy, we won't be able to do that. Yeah, it's a shame. So we talked about, um, you, you went into the the land area, which is obviously uh, the the hideous amount of land, uh, the footprint that wind and solar requires. Um, and I extend that back to the the mining and the uh, the supply chain for it as well. I mean, that's that's a um, the foot the land footprint in use is just the tip of the iceberg. The rest of it just grows out uh, enormously. But I wanted to actually also um, talk about we talked about the the cost of nuclear, which you also talked about in your online uh, article, which I thought was quite interesting. So we went through. There's been a few plants built around the world recently. And they've, some of them have been expensive and some have not. Some countries seem to be able to do this quite easily without uh, blowing the budget and blowing the schedule. Uh, do, do you have any insights on those projects and what it might look like in Australia? Okay, so prices in the eye of the beholder, like, like beauty apparently. And so that really means that it depends so if we look at a particular application, let's look at, for instance, the most recent, um, if you like, developments in the Atherton Tablelands, where they put in uh, wind power, and they're doing this for, um, you know, as part of uh, industrial sort of supply uh, agreements up there, and they're taking out the environmental footprints, not just large, but it's it's taking, um, you know, relatively pristine land, which is very got very high eco. Uh, ecological values mm. um, and they're doing it at a reasonable price in large part because of uh, subsidies uh, from the from the government but also because the um, the prices of the the land and so on are not are not properly accounted for so if you if you look at hidden subsidies not just if you like explicit subsidies I think we'll find that when you tease out the costs the total cost you get a different number and that's that's where I say everything depends. Mm. So if, if we try and tease those costs out and we we say, okay, let's let's try and do this, let's call it uh, above the table instead of under the table, then the numbers are pretty clear. Is that and that is when you when you take your wind and your solar and your transmission lines and your batteries and your hydropower and your control system. I have to go on two hands, by the way, to get all these components. In there. <laughs> let's, let's add a it's few more. Just... The, uh, the demand management, the rehabilitation, uh, you know, loss of supply. You've got uh, your system stability, system strength, sorry, which is your synchronous condensers and your fault, your fault current and your voltage support. Uh, all those things add cost or reduce the available supply. Correct. And you can, and it's easy to see when you put all these, let's call it elements together to create a functioning, if you like, uh, not quite the same as a nuclear or a, even a coal fired power station, but a, a similar mm. system. Because you, you, you mentioned demand management as well. So you don't actually have plug and play. What you have is plug and maybe play. Plug because and compromise. Maybe they can't. Yep. Yeah. You, yeah. There's a lot of this, you know, you're getting a different product. And so, so there's, even if we put that aside, let's assume for the moment that everyone's feeling very, um, let's call it uh, environmental, you know, about this. And, and they say, well, look, I'm happy to compromise my lifestyle for the sake of this environment problem. And so I'm going to accept the fact that I'm going to have some impact on what I want to do. Okay. So let's say that that's even allowing for that. That's a very accommodating um, consumer, but yes, let's go. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, none of those none of those consumers are aluminium smelters because they can't accommodate <laughs> yeah, that right. sort of stuff. They they yeah. close down. So what do we got? We we've got basically a difference in cost between and and this is done by the uh, University of Melbourne, a consortium: University of Melbourne, Princeton, University of Queensland, and the Naus uh, Consulting Group. They just completed that. It was uh, led by um, Robin Batterham. Uh, former chief scientist for Australia, and their conclusion was that the wind, solar, et cetera, all that stuff was going to cost us in the order of $100, $250 billion per year for every year forever. Mm, that's a nice number. And, and that's a rather large number. And you compare that to the estimate that AEMO, our friends and the government-funded organization, at $50 million a year, I believe, that their operating costs are to run that organization. But anyway, so if you, you compare that number that against what they 
what they estimate. And of course, they have different computer models and they have different assumptions. So they've assumed it's only about $300 billion. Mm. So, and that's total. That's that's the total system, $300 billion. So spend now, $300 billion and it's done? Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's what they're saying. But what they haven't said, and there's a lot of, let's call it hidden, they haven't talked about subsidies. They haven't talked about the fact that they're going to draw on everyone's wind and solar assets that they have in their private uh, world. So if you've got rooftops uh, solar, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to get consumed by them. And and mm -hmm. and by the way, you're still going to have to pay for it. They're not going to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And if, if you've got a battery in your car, they're going to draw on that battery in your car to be able to run their system. Mm -hmm. So you see the problem. And so the, when you start to factor in the cost of externalities to what they've assumed, so they've divided they've said this is our box but their box is actually much much bigger and when you look at the total box the total and if, if you look at the fact that it has to be replaced every 20 years or so batteries are about every 10 to 15 years pv cell and, and wind about every 20 to 25 years then you're talking about much much greater numbers hmm. and it's it's impossible to estimate the without doing a lot of detail and the best number yet done is this now sorry this university of melbourne project and they estimated it was basically 100 to 150 billion dollars a year which by the way over a 60 year life of say a nuclear power station adds up to around up to 9 trillion dollars whereas if you use the latest if you like numbers from the united arab emirates that were built by uh korean the latest nuclear power stations uh, built by a korean company and you allow for inflation and you allow for exchange rates the uh, the cost in Australia is going to be in the order of six hundred uh, billion dollars, so it's about um, it's about half of what it would cost um, to put in the AEMO estimated system wind and solar, and what about um, a tenth of what it would cost to put in the University of Melbourne system, mm. and yep. so so that's a, that's as good as it gets at the moment, and no one's got any better numbers. It's look every single project you look at is different. And if you look at averages, it doesn't mean anything because no, nothing is an average. You and I aren't average people. No one is. <laughs> Projects, there's no such thing as an average project. You know, no, it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as average demand either. <laughs> no, no one, no you one designs that. anything on an average. You don't design a build. You don't, you don't design a bridge on an average. You don't design a, um, yeah. a road or a dam or, uh, you know, a roller coaster on averages, everything is built, designed to the maximum of what it needs to do, which also adds to the, it's, it's a, it's a cost that's not often considered, which I think should, is going to come into it eventually. But what I think is the, the low utilization cost of a lot of this infrastructure, it's sitting there. We get charged as consumers for a transmission line, a fixed uh, rate of return on that based on how long it is and how much infrastructure is in it. It's got. It's irrelevant whether it's serving a you know a thirty percent capacity factor power plant out in the middle of whoop whoop. Uh, we're paying for the whole lot of it, no matter what, and it has to be designed for the peak output of those plants. Even if when the sun goes down and it's not windy, the the power flow is zero. It's uh it's atrocious from a from a systems point of view. Well, and and certainly one of the things I would say, and and uh, we, I, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, continue this another night, I, I need to go soon. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, is really interesting to see is it, it's, it's so hard for people to, uh, to uh, prevent themselves from exposing their biases. So even in the University of Melbourne study, they say that they included nuclear, but when I've asked them for information on how they've included it, they say, oh, they'll get back to me. So there's, there's no transparency in the process at all. Oh, yeah. yep. What I, what I believe they've done, and I don't know this because I haven't been able to get any documentation on this, is that they have taken, they've got a wind, they've got basically this massive transmission system and massive energy storage system that they've built and then and control system. And then they say, oh, at each of the nodes where we want energy, we can decide whether we put wind or solar or nuclear. And lo and behold, when you look at the energy choices on that basis, we've already pre-designed the system to accommodate uh, wind and solar, then nuclear is more expensive. Yep. Duh, because it's a different beast. 
It is. You know, and, you know, and, and and the silly thing is we all we've already designed a system that can accommodate nuclear. It's not like we're putting huge cities in the middle of the outback. We're not doing anything like that. Yeah. We we need our centralized radial system. We could just reuse the uh, the coal plants. Well, I'm so glad you brought it up because that is really the obvious thing to do. We we keep the coal uh, systems running until we can put in a nuclear facility alongside the existing coal facility. And then the moment we turn off the coal, we we turn on our nuclear using the same transmission lines, the same people who work there, the same tradesmen, yep. et cetera. Yep. And, and you don't have to close down your villages or shift them to the Northern Territory yep. in order to run your energy system. It, it's And there was a study out of the US uh, Department of Energy only, uh, only a few yeah. months ago, which looked at all the old coal plants in America, and they said 80% of them would swap right over to nuclear, no problem at all. Uh, yeah. Thanks for uh, joining me, Dave. It's been a it's been a good chat, and I I very much would like to um, continue it down the track. Um, cool. Okay. Is there any last words from you on on the the transition and objectivity? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the first step is to just start people thinking about these things. Because so many of the issues that we've discussed are kind of obvious, and if you can cut through their biases, then then we have a real shot of getting them to to see the the truth in these things. And that's, I think, the key part. So the first thing I would say is, how do we get people into a frame of mind where they're prepared to listen? Yes, that is a, that is a nice positive way to end. We don't always end up on a positive note, but that's certainly a good one. Uh, thanks very much, David. <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed the chat. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a week. In the meantime, if you like the podcast, hit the like button, subscribe, tell your friends.